Welcome back to another episode of Cyclist Magazine Podcast. James, how are you? I am absolutely knackered, mate. I'm so tired. I'm in Utah. Uh, obviously, no one else can see this except for you, Anthony, but um, I'm in bed because it's, it's not actually that late. It's like seven, but I've, I've been up probably every two hours uh, over the last nine. I reckon I've got a consolidated five-hour sleep in maybe like the last 24, and I did loads of riding yesterday. So um, my lips and... My lips are so dry and my throat feels... Your like lips? What were you up to? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was literally kiss, kissing the ground for mercy on one of these climbs that these, these guys took me out on. Um, and Because apparently here, so it's Salt Lake City, right, in Utah, and um, everything is... There's loads of salt in the air, so you're kind of constantly drying out. It's like, it's like you're being made into jerky whenever you walk around. But it's really good for cars. So there's no rusty cars, but there's lots of rusty cyclists like me. Sore lips. James will do just about anything for that promotion. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we'll get it. Well, I tell you, like, so Salt Lake is about 1,200 metres, I think, above sea level. Um, and I don't know about you, but you know when you go to the Alps or, I don't know, you go, to, you go to like European mountains and it looks high, doesn't it? You can tell that you're high up. And as you're getting higher, it feels like you're getting higher. And you said that you've ridden in Utah. And there's something strange about being at elevation already and then keeping on riding where it doesn't really feel like you're getting that high. So at the top of one of these climbs, we're close to 3,000 metres. And it was at that point I did think I'm literally doing anything to get this promotion. You know, you just get pushed off an aeroplane <laughs> onto a bike and told to ride up a hill. And you kind of you start questioning what we do this for because it is a joyful experience to a point. And then it becomes a war of attrition, riding with people who are so much better than me. And, you know, like, pity is an awful emotion when it's directed at you. <laughs> I rode in Colombia a couple of years ago at a similar altitude. I'm not sure if you've had a chance. It would make a cool podcast. We should go out and do a live one. The two of us can ride it. Uh, Alto de Letras, it's... Yes. I know there's a load of these climbs that are reported to be the longest climb in the world, but they say this is the longest climb in the world. It's roughly 80 kilometers, but it finishes around 4,000 meters. So it's just this double header because you've ridden 80 kilometers uphill or say you've ridden 75 kilometers uphill, you still have five kilometers left, but the last five kilometers are all above 3,500 meters. So you're just going to pieces on many, many levels at that point. Yeah, I've weirdly, I have actually, we did do that for the mag, trying to find like, you know, the longest climb in the world. And it is definitely because someone's graffitied it at the top. So, you know, it has to be true. <laughs> but yeah, it's a double header and it's not even very steep, is it? No. It's not that steep, but it's consistent. And I found, I found getting over 3,000 metres, it's just like someone pulled a cork out of the bottom of your legs and all this energy just drains out. And when you stop, you can recoup, but then you start again and then you're done after like another 100 yards. You feel like you need to get off. I went through a total emotional roller coaster for those 80 kilometers. Everything from I love cycling, I'm so euphoric, I'm going back full time to like <laughs> almost pulling in the side of the road and tossing my bike over the edge and tumbling a lift and angry violence towards motorists. It had it all. Like it was, it was a horrific day out. You just don't anticipate when you're lining up at the bottom of it that you're going to have such a mental breakdown and come back from the brink so many times. And then at the top, did you have the little, I'm, um... It's like a little soup, like a little cup of water. It's like like sugar water with kind of like so sweet, soft cheese in it that they all love. Did you have that at the top? Which is such a strange reward. No, I literally, I literally worst experience ever at the top. We got to the top, a guy handed us our raincoats and he's like, it's another 10 kilometers uphill to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Well, you can still smile about it. Nearly, so that's... <laughs> I nearly cried. It was bad. Well, I mean... There we go. Um, I'm looking forward to today's party. Uh, I think today's podcast is one I really enjoyed the conversation a lot. So I'm going to let you introduce because you know Ned better than I do. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Ned and I go way back now. So Ned, friend of the podcast, you can say that because he's been on the podcast before. Um, <laughs> and he's back chatting to us. Uh, so, well, I mean, obviously, Ned Bolting, I feel like he needs no introduction, but should probably backtrack. Ned Bolting, the voice of ITV commentary and the voice of the Tour de France in England and Britain, at least for 20 years so we kind of catch up with him about the last two decades in the sport the changes he's seen um but a little side note on there as well that people may or may not know he's also related to uh crispin mills from cooler shaker the band and jordan stevens from uh rizzle kicks which is an odd he's he's from an odd tribe he's got a very large family because his grandparents his his grandfathers were couple of brothers who are big in cinema and also big into philandering i think so a sprawling nexus uh has is ned a part of 
but he's here to talk to us about cycling and also about his one-man show, which he's just started touring again, called Retour de Ned. So there is uh, a bit of live Ned that you can be having. Um, we'll put the link up in the bio. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ned Bolting. Ned Bolting, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Hello, thanks very much. Good to be here. Welcome, Ned. Welcome back. We've spoken before many moons ago, sometime during COVID, I think. I don't know about you, but I blanked the pandemic out of my mind like it never happened. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just... Um, but no, it's good to be back. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I'll jump in first, get the ball rolling, because I know you, just doing a little bit of research, I had assumed you were an institution in cycling that had been there forever. I was kind of <laughs> shocked to learn that you're, as we'd say in Ireland, we call you a blow-in. You'd call someone yeah. in Ireland a blow-in, even if they've lived in a place for the last 40 years, you still call them a blow-in <laughs> if they're not from yeah. there. Yeah. So you're, you're a blow-in to the sport. What was that transition like coming into the sport for the first time? Well, I think I'm still in, I think I'm still involved in it, the transition sort of period one way or another. You're quite right. I'm, it's, it's a mad sport, isn't it? Because... Even though this year I commentated or I worked on my 20th consecutive Tour de France, which by any reckoning is quite a big number, um, regardless of that fact, I do still feel like a, a bit of a newbie to the sport. And um, I think it's because, you know, you never learn out in this sport, do you? For, a start, for one thing, the sport never stays still and it's always evolving and becoming something else and, you know, morphing into the next the next phase so you have to kind of keep up with that but equally the levels of complexity and detail and you know and especially when you you all have to start somewhere don't you and in, in my case I started in 2003 that was my first Tour de France and so that was the 100th not the 100th Tour de France but it was the 100th anniversary of the Tour de France that leaves an entire century of Tour de France's about which I knew nothing you know so <laughs> I've had to kind of collectively retrofit my understanding of the sport year on year and kind of try and thicken it and deepen it as I go. So um, that, as I'm sure you would agree, is an endless process. And so what was that first, can you manage to cast your mind back that far 20 years ago to mm. that first experience and how that differs from the one that's just gone? Well, it was, I mean, God, yeah, in all sorts of ways. Uh, the only rider I'd actually heard of when I was sent by ITV to go and cover the Tour de France, which is an event I'd, I mean, I literally had no understanding of. The only rider I'd actually heard of was Lance Armstrong. And I remember sitting down with the host of ITV's coverage, Gary Imlach, who'd already kind of been doing that job for 10, 15 years. I remember sitting down with him in a, in a cafe in Soho a few weeks before the race got underway and expressing absolute shock and surprise to him that there were teams in the Tour de France. I simply had no idea. I thought I thought it was just like every rider for themselves. Um, and I was still very much at that kind of level of understanding of, what? I just don't get it. Like if Robbie McEwen is the fastest rider in the Tour de France, why doesn't he win it? You know, I couldn't, I, it took me a long, long time to be able to unpick things that nowadays feel very, very straightforward. But in terms of the way that, that the peloton you know, was the characteristics of the peloton. 2003 was Lance Armstrong's fifth victory. You know, mm. he was absolutely at the height of his powers, of his celebrity, you know. And so I think what blew me away more than anything else was his status, actually, his personality and the way his presence in the race seemed to dictate absolutely everything. And the, the levels of international global interest in this little Texan man, um, I was not prepared for. And, you know, bear in mind, I'd come from literally interviewing David Beckham at the height of his kind of Manchester United career and stuff like that. I was very familiar with sporting celebrity, but nothing prepared me for the character and the hype around Lance Armstrong. It was, it was honestly, it was on a different scale back then. Now, do you think ultimately coming into the sport, not from a cycling background, aided your job as a commentator? Because I suppose your job as a commentator, for me, it's a dual role of not alienating the initiated fans while also onboarding the new fans. And for me, I find this difficult to even converse with someone who doesn't understand cycling because I grew up in a house that watched cycling. My dad was a bike mechanic. This vocabulary has been second nature to me and I can't remember a time before I had that understanding. Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, I think this is happenstance and it's happened by accident rather than by design you know I'm sure ITV would have liked to have sent a, a fully fledged expert to go and cover the Tour de France but they just didn't have one you know didn't have one on their books so they sent a novice instead <laughs> <laughs> 
Because, I mean, frankly, let's think about where the sport was in terms of, you know, Ireland obviously has a very separate story to it. So, and, you know, you as a nation were already a long, long, long way down that journey of discovery by the time 2003 came along, completely different context. But in the UK, you know, the audience was, aside from a very, very hard core of fans who'd been with it all the way since the Channel 4 days in the 80s, it was, broadly speaking, an unknown, an unknown, unknown, the Tour de France. And so it was kind of in a funny way, accidentally appropriate that they sent an ignoramus like myself to go and find out about the race. And then I think, you know, a few things happened at the same time and Armstrong, regrettably, was his story was a, was a part of what was happening at the time. And um, an audience started to grow and that audience started to balloon into something really substantial. And all of a sudden, British riders were then going on to achieve the unimaginable in terms of success and started to win the regularly the, the sports personality of the year and it became like a bona fide kind of second tier sport just a couple of notches below football and cricket and rugby you know very very quickly and I think it's been strange because my career has kind of accompanied if you like this growing viewership who were perhaps discovering the sport for the very first time in their lives just as I was live on their screens in front of their very you know under their very noses so I think it was a happy synergy of, of you know that me going on the journey with the audience at the same time. Well, I guess that, that kind of works really well as like that synergy with the audience. But what we probably can't see at home are those, what must have been occasional acutely embarrassing moments where the people that you were creating the synergy with didn't have no, had no synergy with you because they were deeply entrenched in the sport. Can you remember like one of those, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not from around here sort of moments? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, pretty much my first, you know, half decade on the race felt a bit like that, you know, um, because how could it How could it otherwise? You know, it's a very, very cultish thing, isn't it, road racing? And um, it speaks its own language, literally. You know, back then it spoke French um, and it didn't speak English. And so almost every encounter with a bike rider one way or another was like that. And there are a certain generation of riders um, who still feel that way. I mean, I remember... The last time, it's quite funny this actually, the last time I was touring my one-man show pre-COVID was 2018. And I happened to be touring the country, doing my little one-man show, at pretty much the same time that Bradley Wiggins was doing a book tour. And we would sort of crisscross our itineraries and overlap slightly. And a lot of our audiences had seen both Bradley Wiggins' show and then would come and see mine. And for, for whatever reason, because I, I'd never fallen out with Bradley Wiggins' I have no sort of history of animosity with Bradley Wiggins, but for whatever reason, I, my understanding is that part of that show, uh, regularly of his show, was to sort of denigrate me <laughs> <laughs> on stage in a kind of foul-mouthed tirade about what a beep, beep, beep I was. And his main point of contention, his big beef with me, I think, was that um, he knew more about cycling than me. But, I mean, I was literally the guy who wrote a book called How I Won the Yellow Jumper. You know, I've literally never wanted to pull the wool over people's eyes or claim a, a kind of expert inside a track when I don't have one. You know, I've always been very, very... I've, I've tried to be very frank and open about how I've discovered this sport and grown, by the way. Oh, it's taken over my life. It's grown to be an absolute passion of mine. There is that as well. But, um, but yeah, that sniffy attitude of a certain generation of riders of what are you even doing here in our club? you don't belong. I think it's kind of evaporating, but it was certainly part of my my first encounters with the race, yeah, for sure. The sniffy attitude is so, it's so misinformed because if you, the nature of the, you know, chronology of history, there's always something that's going to predate you. And if you think like, even my example of growing up in the house uh, that's, you know, immersed in cycling culture, even if I go to watch a bike race now, my dad still makes me feel like I know nothing about the sport. <laughs> like, yeah, but that's a, that's a dad's job, isn't it? Yeah. It's just... <laughs> You know, regardless of what the thing, the point is, he's just got to put you in your place. He watches the most amazing solo Pogaccia victory and he'll be like, oh, no, I watch Merckx back in the oh, day. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This kid's, this kid's nothing. <laughs> Move on. Yeah, nothing to see here. Yeah, you know, you're dead right. And let's not forget, you know, there is the first bike race I happened ever to see was the prologue of the 2003 Tour de France in Paris, right? But everybody has a first bike race that they go and see. You know, mine just happened to be that one. So we all start from somewhere, don't we, on that journey? But that wasn't your first commentating gig, was it? You were doing, you were working in sport before that. Where else 
would we have heard you? Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't have heard me commentate because commentating, which is a very distinct difference from presenting and reporting, which is what I used to do. Um, they're completely different jobs, by the way. I mean, that's, that probably needs explaining or, or you know reminding people. But I didn't commentate back then. I used to report on football and present occasionally football highlights for originally Sky Sports and then ITV Sport. So, you know, that took me all around the Premier League and the Champions League, took me to World Cups and European Championships and blah, blah, blah. So football was my first love as a sport and my first sort of career choice when I got into sports journalism. And how did that kind of football changing room sort of situation compare to being around the team buses in cycling? Well, this is one of the reasons why I instantly fell, even uh, you know, even through all my confusion about the sport and my lack of understanding about the sport, why I saw great merit in it and why it intrigued me was because you could, back then especially, get so close to the riders. Um, and that was something that was already had been bled out of football completely. You know, by 2003, the doors were shut. Every football club had a press officer whose job was to say no. Um, you know, you were held at arm's length. You were castigated for asking the wrong question. Lists of authorised questions were drawn up from which you were not allowed to deviate. You had endless sort of agents hanging around and marketing men accompanying all the press officers and the clubs and the individual athletes. But in cycling, even Armstrong, you know, even Armstrong back then, he didn't have a press officer. You know, that was the last iteration of the US postal team. They didn't have a press officer. So if you wanted to interview Lance Armstrong as I had to do almost on a daily basis in 2003, very often after the race, you just go to the Campanile Hotel where you knew the team was staying and you'd look at reception and where the elevator was, there'd be a list, a photocopied list of who was staying in which room and including Armstrong. And you'd go up to the second floor and you'd go to room 213 and you'd knock on the door. I don't think the Dutch Federation have learned much from the kind of <laughs> list on the side of the hotel. It's quite easy to do knickknacks on Van der Poel's room. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, it hasn't, it's changed a bit in cycling, but it's still, you know, there's still enough of that for it to feel very, very different as a journalist operating in cycling as opposed to football. I mean, at its heart, road racing, for all its kind of grand scale and its beauty, it is quite an amateur sport, you know, and, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. It's quite shoddily run and things slip between the gaps. And um, a lot of the time, the teams and the organisations and the race organisers don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> and so it's quite a creative environment to be working in. And do you still feel like you're learning tactically? I know the greatest sort of uh, investment into teaching someone tactically is my girlfriend has started watching cycling in the last 18 months or so. So she's starting to get the nuances of it. But every now and then she'll watch a race and she's like, I don't understand. Like, why are movie star chasing Carapaz? None of the rules you taught me, this makes sense. And I'm like, oh yeah, because Carapaz said he was going to sign for movie star. Then he screwed them over and signed for Ineos. But that sort of debacle would have predated her watching the race. So you have these sort of almost feudal grudges that are interwoven into the tactics. Are you still learning that type of stuff? Or is it, are you at a point now where you're like, okay, I think I've figured it all out. I've hung around David Miller long enough. I've figured it out. Uh, well, I mean, there's, we, David and I have a word that we love to use where suddenly something happens in a race and, like you say, it just takes you a while to kind of calibrate and go, no, I literally don't get that. I don't get what's happening. And we call that a baffler. And it's funny that you say Movistar because very often the bafflers come from Movistar <laughs> and occasionally Astana. Um but I mean, I think we read, me and David read races pretty well. Um, it's certainly been a you know journey of discovery and understanding on my part. I think David coming fresh out of the peloton was instantly very articulate, you know. And what the bit he had to learn as a, as a commentator was the kind of broadcasting techniques and sides of that to actually bring across all that extraordinary insight that he's got. I mean, I, to some extent, had the broadcasting bit sort of ready-made, but I had to meet him halfway with my tactical understanding of how to read a race but that for me is the great joy of and I, I realized all along until I started commentating that I never actually watched a bike race properly until I was commentating on it because to watch a race and be the voice that is articulating move by move what's going on you need to watch it in a completely different manner so if I can if I can give you an example of if you like a classic shot from a road race would be what we call moto two so that's the motorbike in front of the peloton yeah that's for hour after hour after hour, all we're seeing is Tim de Klerk riding on the front, controlling it for, for Fabio Jakobsen to sprint, you know. And that's what, if you're just watching, sitting back on the couch, that's kind of as much as you're absorbing, really. If you're commentating, you're not looking at Tim de Klerk, you're brushing him to one side, he's just a given. What we're looking at is what's happening maybe 15th wheel 
why have Bahrain victorious suddenly appeared with four riders there? You know, and by the way, where are Ineos? Why have they dropped right to the back? You know, so it's all that stuff that is actually bubbling away in this massive peloton all the time. And it may look like nothing's happening, but that's never the case. Stuff is always, always going on. And that's the great intrigue of the race, I think. Do you see what we see? So what we're seeing at home, uh, the camera's cutting from, yeah, Moto2 to a chopper to something else. Are you just basically getting the same feed or do you have multiple monitors? Um, sometimes when I'm commentating on races, I do have multiple monitors, but you've got to be quite careful with that because it's giving you information that the viewer can't see. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can't start banging on about what's going on in the peloton. If the director hasn't cut the shot up, it's not going to make much sense to the viewer. Um, so by and large, the rule of thumb is I'm looking at exactly what you're looking at. And that in the internet age, that makes the job of the commentator quite hard, actually, because we are, there's very little bandwidth available to us other than to occasionally consult our notes. Yeah. And a very, very occasionally, if we have to fact check something, we'll look something up very briefly on the internet, but you can't be Googling stuff and commentating. You basically have your eyes on the screen for five hours and you do not leave that position, you know. Um, whereas we're very aware that a lot of our viewers are sitting there with an iPad in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other. And when I say Naira Quintana, the winner of the 2017 Vuelta, when in fact it was the 2016 Vuelta, you know, they know better than me because I'm going to trip up. You know, it's a lot of facts to have at your fingertips and some of them are going to be wrong. So I'm very conscious of the fact that we're going to be schooled by our audience and we regularly are because they know they often know more than we do actually about what's you know the wider context because they're scrolling twitter they're seeing what the teams are tweeting we can't be doing any of that we're absorbed in the race at the time does that ever become um personal ultimately because we've had carlton kirby on this show and also phil liggett and carlton particularly you know he makes a joke of it um getting lambasted over socials for making a mistake kind of kirbyisms but mm. on some level as mm. well he's like you know it does hurt and people can people can be strangely out of character horrible, can't they, when they're given the kind of, yeah, the internet as a platform. Is that something that you have, how have you managed to deal with that, I suppose, is the question. Um, I think I'm fortunate enough, I don't, I don't get too much of it, um, I, except save for in 2016 when David Miller and I took over quite suddenly, commentating on the Tour de France, we took over from Phil Liggett and Paul Sherman, who of course has passed away a few years ago um, and is sadly missed. And for, for many of our viewers, that was just a, a real wrench, you know, Phil and Paul had been the voice of the race for them for as long as they could remember and further back beyond that. And indeed, for me, Phil Liggett was the voice of the race. Um, and I think, quite understandably, people didn't like the change for quite a while. And I remember the first week of that race, Twitter was a horrible place to be, you know, a really horrible place to be. And then bit by bit, by about stage 13, the abuse sort of dried up and now I, I don't get it very often. And when I, And when I do, when someone upbraids me on stuff I, I just have to accept it than I am and it goes with the territory but uh, yeah what, what Carlton seems to endure is um, I don't know how he puts up with it to be honest I, it would drive me out of the profession that he's chosen I don't know how he puts up with it Ned what is the fascination with 12th century French architecture on the sort of France <laughs> well I think this is a this is a bit of the commentary job that I think David and I by our own admission we kind of initially we we neglected because we were so fascinated by, we were so, we set the bar so high in terms of we need to be tactically on it. We need to call the race properly. We need to give the race its respect and get it right. And so we were so fixated on the race that we forgot about the chateaus, you know, and the monasteries and the, and the cheese and the wine and the journey and the cultural sort of like thing. And after we'd sort of relaxed into our role a little bit, after two or three years maybe of commentating, we suddenly thought, now we need to bring France back into the race, you know? And um, year on year, I think it's more and more important to us because it becomes very obvious that the Tour de France is a race that most of our viewership only watch one race a year, and it's the Tour de France. They literally don't go near any other bike race. And a big reason why they're watching is for that, you know? And so um, it's genuinely become something that interests us. Started off as a sort of commentator's duty. And by the way, it's absolutely amazing how much was built in the 12th century, not the 13th or the 11th century. <laughs> the 12th century was just a standalone century in terms of building. Um, but it's become a, you know, so so if we, for example, if we have a stage finish in Chartres, we will absolutely 100% in the morning, provided we can get there, we'll ride our folding bikes to the cathedral and we'll spend half an hour going around the cathedral and reminding ourselves of 
how that Gothic cathedral is just one of the most splendid buildings in Europe. And then when we see it later on, it's an authentic response because we've actually done cool. done the tourism ourselves. You know, it's not phony. You know, we 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 are genuinely as as interested as we can be in all this stuff. Do you find your architecture enthusiast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a France enthusiast. You know, I absolutely I adore the country. Do you find yourself having to tour to, to more Gothic cathedrals on a flat sprint stage where you just know there is going to be so much time to fill? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's where you. Yes, <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. But what I find quite funny is very often the Finnish town, which pays the most to the Tour de France, gets weirdly the least coverage, because the director's in a terrible spot here. On the one hand, he has a kind of he has a duty to show off the cathedral or the castle or whatever it is at the finish. But on the other hand, there's ten kilometers to go, and you know the bunch are chasing down the breakaway, and the breakaway might stay away. So you've got the thick end of the race right there. So you know the closer you are to the finish line, the less of this stuff you tend to get from the air. Now, if you zoom out and you look at how much the sport has changed from 2003 to 2022, what's been the big sort of dominant changes or dominant figures? Obviously, you touched on that Armstrong era and the legacy that Armstrong has left, but is there anything else other than that that's really standing out to you, like launch a team sky, Floyd Landis getting popped? Man, alive. Those years after Armstrong, you know, before his comeback, those those years in the immediate aftermath of his last race, in what was it, 2005, wasn't it? Um, they were insane. I mean, as a journalist, they were probably the most interesting to cover because it was almost like Festina, you know, the, the 1998 year every single day. I remember in particular the hounding of um, the, that we were a part of, the hounding of Michael Rasmussen in the in yeah. the yellow jersey of the race lead and the way that the Tour de France organisation, you know, manipulated the media and actually used us to get him off the race because he was embarrassing their brand, you know. They were insane when I think about it. And then the, the, the second generation EPO year with Schumacher and, and people like that, you know, I think that was 2007, 2008, wasn't it? Bernard Call and riders like that. It was just around every corner there was overt doping. I mean, the day, the day that Floyd Landis did his mad marauding ride into Morzine. Stage 17, uh, was it? Stage 17, it was, I saw him, I doorstepped him that morning. The previous day he'd lost the yellow jersey. And by sheer coincidence, his team, Fonac, was staying in the same hotel as Kestepania, which was, um, what's his name, the Spanish rider who went on to win the race? Oscar Pereira. Yes. Um, Oscar Pereira was now in yellow, and everyone was sort of interested in interviewing the yellow jersey. <clears throat> I wasn't. I wanted to interview Floyd Landis. And I kind of, he snuck out the back, right? He snuck out this little exit at the back, and I was waiting for him there. And I remember this wild look in his eyes genuinely he just looked like he was shaking physically i mean with benefit of hindsight it's now completely obvious why but i knew pretty much there and then that what he'd done and what he was about to do i didn't know it was going to happen in quite the same way but it was so obvious that doesn't really answer your question has it but <laughs> I, I think the the chaos of those years then eventually subsided and and listen i'm the last guy i hope i'm the last guy to sit here and wave a little union jack and say you know um, Team Sky this and GB that, um, because I think that they have stepped far too close to an ethical grey line. And I think at times they've quite self-evidently crossed it. Yeah, so I'm not going to defend their propriety. But what I would claim on their behalf is that their different approach, their professionalism and their budget, um, I think has dictated, for example, the way that Jumbo Visma go about their business now and the reorganisation of maybe some of the, the ways that the French teams are run. You know, I think their ethos has, for better or worse, changed cycling and filtered through the peloton. So I think in terms of moving it on into this era that we're now currently in, I think probably you, you do have to credit Team Sky with being really quite a, an influential marker in the sport for their in the early part of their uh, creation. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, certainly. I think Anthony would say the same. Yeah, you, there is a, it's a turning point, isn't it? That the creation of Sky, the budgets of Sky, the meticulous nature of Sky's of, of Sky's everything was a turning point for cycling. Like you said earlier, cycling has this kind of cottage industry about it, and Sky kind of waded in and tried to professionalise that. Mm. And, you know, in so doing, yeah, did everything from tread pretty close to that wire to also maybe alienate a bunch of fans who actually like the ramshackle version of cycling. Um, mm, but yeah, no, I yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly agree. But I was, I was thinking, thinking back to what you're just saying then about those chaotic years, those tail end of Armstrong, um, Armstrong, 
we can say Lanstrong <laughs> now. There's there's a good portman. Lanstrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and you know, moving uh, into the later, uh, you know, towards the 2010s, how did you feel as a bystander, commentator, conduit, someone, as you said, that was going through um, a kind of synergistic growth into cycling along with your audience? Your audience, I guess, are your friends. You think of them in that way, I'd imagine. Your kind of crew. You've got a responsibility to them. But at the same time, presumably, yeah, you see Landis kind of literally buzzing, fizzing away. You... I would guess would feel a kind of repugnance towards that too. Were there times where you sort of thought, I, I need to get out of here because this isn't, this isn't something I want to be party to and it's not something that I want to kind of facilitate or maybe even look to be complicit in because I'm here, I'm stood next to, you know, insert name of, <laughs> of, mm, uh, of mm. Dopa. Well, I think I would have felt like that if I, if, I, if I were to sit here and look back and feel deeply uncomfortable about being complicit, then, then, then maybe, but I... I it was a battleground for sure, but I think we stood our ground at ITV for in the way that we covered the race. I think we, you know, it was incredibly difficult because going back to the Armstrong years, he was at the, when I first joined up with the race, he was at the height of his litigious kind of behaviour. In other words, he just settled out of court with the Sunday Times, you know, for their serialisation of LA Confidential, and they buckled in the face of his lawyers. Now, so imagine if Gary Imlach or I or Phil Liggett had just gone on the telly on the airways and just accused him of doping. We'd have been shut down. We'd Also, I don't think our employers would have backed us. I think we'd have been out on our asses. you know, quite apart from the fact that Armstrong would have gone after you. So we were always on the hunt for the silver bullet that we could use and we could stand up and actually broadcast. The problem is we couldn't find one. So all that was left for us to do was challenge Armstrong as often and as forcefully within the parameters of what we could as we did. And um, it was tough. But you know, I can recall incidents where I did just that. And I, you know, and it, it wasn't easy standing a foot away from Lance Armstrong, knowing that you were insinuating stuff about him, and then realizing that he had understood the nature of your question. You know, th- this is this is, I can think of four or five occasions where we did have these kind of encounters. And if I hadn't, if I just played along with the game, I think I would have a bad conscience about you know, how I behaved. But, I, you know, talking about those years, those post-Armstrong years, I remember I remember Stefan Schumacher winning the, the individual time trial. He's a surprise winner in, I think, 2006, 2007, and taking the yellow jersey. And while we were waiting for him to be taken across to the media, I'd been talking to some German colleagues about him because he wasn't a rider I knew a great deal about. And they told me, Ned, you do realise that in the winter he'd um, crashed a car and tested positive in a police test for amphetamines. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting, isn't it, as a cyclist? So instead of congratulating him on winning the time trial and taking the yellow jersey, I, my first question to him was, um, can you tell me about when you tested positive for the presence of amphetamines? And he looked at me as if he'd been punched in the face because he was not expecting that coming. And I remember, and then I followed it up with, you know, do you not think that the yellow jersey has a responsibility to answer questions when things like that have happened in your recent past? And I remember getting, this is back in the day where we would get letters sent to ITV and emails, you know. I remember we got a lot of complaints about my line of questioning there. And they didn't ask me to apologise, but I was definitely told by the producers just to be a bit careful about my tone. And then a week after the Tour de France finished, they released the result that Stefan Schumacher had tested positive for second-generation EPO on that day as he stood there in the yellow jersey talking to me and denying any use of amphetamines. You know, so that was the, these are the levels of difficulty. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human being, you know, I was completely aware of the fact that at the crowning moment of his bicycling career that he dedicated his entire life to, this human being was being confronted with my aggressive line of questioning. I didn't do it because I'm a psychopath. I did it because that was my job. You know, and it was really, really hard. I think you have a unique perspective into those Armstrong years as well. And that story kind of illustrates it a little bit further because you can push so much against, I don't want to call them vulnerable targets, but targets that are less litigious than Armstrong. Mm. But when you see journalists pushing hard against Armstrong, like I'm trying to think of an example, like I'm not sure if you recall Paul Kimmage in the Tour of California when he asked, why are you such good friends with the dopers? Yeah. And Armstrong's response was, you know, basically vitriol hatred towards Paul Kimmich. Is it difficult as a colleague of Paul Kimmich is sitting there to ask a follow-up question to that? How intimidating is it? Oh, I, what Paul did there was his best moment, I think, Paul Kimmich. You know, oh, 
it's a it's a tricky one because he 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 doles these days he doles out a lot of abuse himself. <laughs> uh, he, he fires it out left, right, and centre, and a lot of us have been on the receiving end of it because I think he thinks that everybody who isn't called Paul Kimmage, by and large, is is kind of complicit. Um, but I, I I take my hat off to him for confronting Armstrong in those brutal terms in which he did before the tour of California back in the day. He used the word cancer quite in a quite a targeted and deliberate way, and that was exceptionally brave. Um, and uh, you know, it takes a man with um, with a real sense of mission actually, and a risk readiness like Paul Kimmage um, to do that. And it was a very important moment in the gradual unmasking of Lance Armstrong. So, you know, and and your fellow Irishman, of course, David Walsh. And with the testimony of another Irish um, character, Emma O'Reilly, quite specifically, I think, you know, without Betsy Andrew and Emma O'Reilly, those two women actually having the bravery to talk to David Walsh and give that first eyewitness testimony to malfeasance, uh, none of that would have happened. So Ireland can pat itself on the back (laughs) one way or another um, with, with that contribution for sure, yeah. But we will move on from this in a minute. I don't want to sort of like drill into it too hard. But no, like, the last question is just thinking about that moment. Was it uh, 2008, 2009 Armstrong comes back and then he ends up riding for Astana, but he's... Initially, 2009, yeah. Yeah, initially at Radio Shack for a little bit or something. But when at that moment, you and your colleagues, um, the Kimmages, the Walshes, um, your co-presenters at ITV, your bosses, what's, mm. what's the tone when that news comes through? What, that he's going to come back? Yeah, what are you guys thinking then? It was, um, it, I remember it quite clearly, actually. It was it was a real kind of weary, you know, just because we'd had the chaos that had followed. We'd had the Landis years and, the, and, and all of that sort of thing. And the sport was just beginning to find its feet again. In fact, I remember, you know, the race that year in 2009 started in Monaco. And I remember two things. I remember one is I remember being party to um, the very first discussions about Team Sky being put together later on that year. So what we spoke about earlier, the kind of the beginning of the next era of cycling was just beginning to seed itself. Um, and of course, they launched in 2010. And I and I remember as well, very clearly interviewing Paul Kimmage for the top of our programme about Armstrong's return to the peloton. And I think we all shared the same sentiment that, you know, it was it was the last thing that the sport wanted at that moment was to be reminded of what it was trying so desperately to leave behind. Um, yeah, they were two pretty miserable years, really, having Armstrong back in the race. The Landis one had to be some of the craziest stuff, though, because I remember the Stage 17 win was, you know, incredible. But it was the fallout after he tested positive that was equally incredible. Like, he brought out a book that I think was titled Positively False. He started the yeah. Floyd Fairness Fund, where people, like, normal working people actually donated money towards his legal case to fight this. <laughs> I just, I can't yeah. get into the psyche, like... I understand Team Sky and I understand that when you're pushing and trying to find marginal gains all the time, that it's not a black and white line, that occasionally it's grey and you'll step across that. But to have that sort of, you know, it's almost a, a nastiness to you to bring out a book and to ask people to contribute to a legal fund is a totally different type of animal. I, I'm with you and it doesn't tally at all with what I understand of Floyd Landis's character. Likewise, Tyler Hamilton, I mean, Hamilton, I thought, was um, one of the nicest guys I'd ever met in the peloton. And yet some of the way that his doping past and his doping culture made him behave in terms of his complete willingness to go in front of the cameras and just talk horse shit in the most brazen fashion, you know, really jarred with, with who he thought he was. But I think, you know, you have to remember both of them came from the Armstrong factory, if you like. So if you trace back this kind of slight, uh, psychopathy in their behaviour. I think, you know, without wanting to sound like an a- amateur psychologist, I think a lot of it could be traced back to the way Armstrong controlled his environment through which their formative racing years had both passed, you know, um, because he was a one-off, Armstrong, really. And that's why he's been, you know, people often say, how come Armstrong has been singled out for all this particular attention as the arch-doper and all these other people have kind of got away with it, you know? Well, yeah, there is an inequality in in the punishments that have been meted out. But I think if you just step back and look at the context of those years, there's a reason for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it, he does fascinate me. He just continues to fascinate me still, though, because he's all over um, Instagram over the last couple of days with um, the Move podcast, yeah. um, basically cycling mm. holiday. And he's sitting there with a grinning mm. Wiggins and a grinning Mark Cavendish and a grinning rather large, I think, uh, Jan Ulrich, is there with him 
Yeah. And it's kind yeah. of it's kind of mad. And his podcast, The Move, allegedly, because you know, we shan't disclose our podcast figures, no one does. Somehow someone <laughs> finds it out. Um, they reckon that in the 2019 tour, for example, he made a million dollars for his podcast turnover in sponsorship, which is twice what Sky made in winning it in three weeks. <laughs> and you think like, and then he apparently he's got these shares in Uber, so he's just like incredibly yeah. well off from that. But yeah, back to the Mallorca thing. Again, what do kind of like journalists think? Like when you see, because from my point of view, you know, we're seeing two English heroes, UK, Great Britain heroes, kind of palling up with someone that apparently, particularly as journalists, you know, I've seen all kinds of things over the years where Armstrong's name is starred out like it's a swear word or he's referred to in some weird kind of Voldemorty kind of way. And a bit tongue-in-cheek, but also like that's a toxic asset. Don't go near that. And now, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm just not really sure what to make of that. And I wonder what, if you've seen it, what you, what you did. I was a little surprised. I wasn't particularly surprised to see Bradley Wiggins there, I must admit. Um, I <laughs> Um, you know, that's just, that kind of fits in with, I think, what what I would imagine Wiggins, the kind of invitations he might accept, you know, and it, he's, he's his own man, isn't he? And he kind of like doesn't, famously doesn't give two hoots about what people think of him or, you know, his career really. Although I'm sure deep down he probably does. But it did slightly surprise me, I think, to see Mark, Mark go there as well. Um, uh, but, you know, they are, those two Guys, they are completely different characters, but they are two of the most complicated individuals and charismatic in their both in their separate ways as well. I have ever met. Uh, so I've kind of given up <laughs> trying to guess what their motivations might be, and particularly in the case of Mark, actually, who's who I've known. You know, I'm not, I remember I remember sitting next to him in his little propeller aeroplane as we flew to Brest in 2008 from Birmingham. I just happened to be booked on the same totally empty flight with him. And that was 2008, the start of his winning streak. You know, he was a few days away from winning his first ever stage of the Tour de France. And I've known him because of the proximity of that my job has brought to, to him. I've known him ever since then, sort of off and on pretty well, you know, one way and another. And we converse every now and again on WhatsApp. And, but I wouldn't say I know him. And I know people who know him much, much, much better than me. And even they are constantly surprised by him because he'll do the last thing that you expect him to do every time. You know, you cannot predict what Mark Cavendish's next move is going to be on the bike or off the bike, as he proved last year when he came back to the Tour de France and picked up where he'd left off all those years ago, you know. He's an amazing character, an amazing character. I think there's also that historical context, like your reference to 2008 to begin uh, HTC Columbia and really the emergence mm. for the first time of that really super, almost military-like drill lead-out train that mm. we've seen with Mark Renshaw dropping him off. But George Hincapie was a key part of that lead-out train. So I think that's the you know the hook-up to the Mallorca connection, as far as I can see it. Yeah, Hincapie, absolutely. He's part of, he was on, sitting there on the sofa in Mallorca, wasn't he, with all the other characters there. So I think you're right. I think you're right. That was a great team, by the way. That was an amazing era. And, and for me, just going on, you know, last thing about Mark Cavendish, I, I think when I ever, when I eventually stop doing this job and move away from the Tour de France, which eventually I will, I think that that moment in Chateau Roux in 2008, when he won his first stage, will probably be the outstanding memory. I don't think anything's going to quite cap that because it was so unexpected for me. I could never imagine having seen... I'd never, I had never imagined I'd see a British rider win a stage of the Tour de France, you know, that wasn't a prologue. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also a story of almost rebirth as well, because HTC was born from really the ashes of the very troubled T-Mobile project. Very good point. Yeah, I mean, yes, that's a really good. I'd never thought about it in those terms, but you're right, leaving the past behind and 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 moving into a, a yeah a, a different future. I think that's a really good point. I hadn't, hadn't considered it like that. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I'm sure this is a question that you've been asked many times, was Quickstep, you know, right to have left Cav out for this season? Was that something that rankled with you as a fan? Or you thought, yeah, do you know what, if I was if, if I was in charge, I'm sure Brian Holm wasn't up for it. I'm sure he was uh, overruled somewhere. Um, but yeah, if I was in charge um, at Quickstep, you know, to be honest, we wouldn't be taking him. Uh, it's, re- it's a really difficult one because... And it- <laughs> You know, almost like by offering support to the to Mark Cavendish's case, you're almost denigrating Fabio Jakobsen. You know, which 
would be a really impossibly hard thing to do. He took two stages. He's battled his way through the mountains. And, of course, his personal story is um, incredibly moving, and it's a, it's a triumph of the will, really, and his surgeons. <laughs> I mean, it's an, incredible, it's an incredible comeback story in its own right. And I, I think for him to have been denied the opportunity to race the Tour de France because of Cavendish chasing the Merckx record would have been equally unfair. The, the only thing I do think about it is that they didn't go to the Tour de France with Julien Alaphilippe. They weren't expecting, apart from when uh, Yves Lampart suddenly took it, they weren't expecting to have to defend the yellow jersey. They had no general classification ambitions. Um, and a bit of me just thought, come on, do something different, because you've got the opportunity to do this now. Take two sprinters. Take two. Take them both. Because if you said to Cavendish, Mark, you've got the first week, right, to get number 35. You've got probably two or three opportunities in the first week to get number 35. But if it doesn't happen by the time we get to the Alps, you'll just, everything's about Fabio after that. But we'll support you for the first week. And you know, because you've seen it so often from Cavendish, that he would have got one of those stages, right? And you know that as soon as he'd done that, he would have flipped like that. And you would have seen him battering himself on the front working for Jakobsen because he's he is a team player as well, you know? And I think that would have been like, unusual but it would have been quite fun to watch so i you know i think they might have missed an opportunity there i've got a little bit of a hot take on the jacobson thing i mm. i love a comeback story like everyone it was great to see jacobson coming back from you know nearly his deathbed onto sort of france but i also think it's quite a dangerous precedent within cycling because it's jacobson as far as i know is still soon grown away again for the aftermath of that crash and as a pure cycling fan, you look at that Tour of Poland crash, it's downhill, it's tailwind sprint, it's a dangerous finish. But the gap that Jakobsen goes through and the deviation Grunewagen has from his line isn't something we don't see, you know, 10, 20 times a season. So by giving that huge band to Grunewagen, you're penalizing the consequences rather than the conduct. And the consequences are totally out of control. The conduct, we can change. But we've seen Buhani sprints like that every day of the week, yet it doesn't result in the same severity of penalties against them. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of human nature, though, isn't it? You know, when you... Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think there's a great deal of logic to what you say, and I think you're right. Um, it's just that's the way the world works. And it's a bit like what we, the conversation we were having earlier about why is Armstrong singled out for a particular treatment? Well, it was the violent... Uh, consequence of that accident that has led ultimately to to what we're seeing in the courtrooms but logically logically you're absolutely right and and you know the the, the fact of the matter is that the real fault lay with the race organization and the UCI for not you know actually getting a grip and it happened the other day didn't it at the um what was the race the other day that with that the Croatian or was it the Crow Tour? was the one with the cobbled corner 90 degrees with like 200 meters to go or something just just crazy you know, so so, I don't know. I think you make a very good point, though. I think you make a very good point, and there are plenty of riders who do. And it's not just Buani; he got, he's got a he's got a reputation for it. You know, Cavendish has been known from time to time to some, pull some pretty crazy moves. Caleb Ewan is pretty ragged in a sprint. Um, Pascal Ackerman's a nightmare. So they're all from what what you know. They all have their moments, don't they? <laughs> they they certainly do. I'm just kind of amazed that I mean, you know, in this world of um, litigation, I guess you can you can sue anyone for anything, but the kind of all's fair in love and war. Okay, it's probably not fair and it's not actually war. But, you know, <laughs> you'd you, you almost feel like you've you've just signed up for this. This is the nature of the beast. Unless there is literally, you know, someone's shoving a pump in somebody's spokes. Yeah, you, how I'm not really sure how you can sue for that. But at the same time, obviously, you can because the reason why, you know, Anthony will know this because Anthony used to be a lawyer as well as a bike racer as well as a podcaster. You can, ah, you can kind of... Yeah. You litigate and you win based on your lack of earnings, and, and you know that's and that's a good reason to have money paid back to you, isn't it? Because you got, everyone's got to eat at the end of the day. But I'm just, I'm yeah, I'm just not sure if does that happen in other other sports? You know, well, it's nearly James. I think it's it's figuring out inside sport what level of assault, for want of a better word, that we consent to. So if you're walking down the high street and somebody bangs you a shoulder, you clearly don't consent to that. So that could give rise to an assault charge when we. Stay step into a football arena you consent to shoulders banging each other so it doesn't give rise to an assault charge but this isn't an absolute mm. black and white line it's like when we get into a cycling context do you consent to shoulders banging yes arguably i don't consent to somebody taking their hands off the bar and hitting me a punch that's beyond what i consent to but do you consent to the 
possibility that someone might close a gap at speed and there's going to be life-threatening injuries. I would argue, I think you do as a sprinter, but it's it, it's an academic argument rather than, you know, a black and white line. Yeah. Was there not, a, um, you know, you mentioned football there, Anthony. Was there not um, was there not something similar with Roy Keane and Alfinger Haaland back in the day where that... Where that broken leg or I, I yeah. dimly remember it. Yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm sure Roy Keane just went around his house and just told him to wind his neck in and that was the end of it. <laughs> so I, th- I think the problem with that one was it was a bad, bad tackle for a lot of years and the historical context to it is Roy Keane tore his cruciate ligament in a tackle with Alfinga Haaland. Alfinga Haaland accused him of faking injury. Keane sort of signed up to that ethos of revenge is a dish best served cold. So he waited six or seven years and he ruined Alfinga's career with a tackle. But at the time, it looked like a very bad tackle, but you couldn't say it was deliberate, you know, although it looked deliberate. The problem for Roy Keane came when he published an autobiography a few years later and he said, yes, it was deliberate. I went out to end his career. And that's when the legal stuff, uh, you know, began to haunt him for it. Oh, okay. Eamon Dumphy's book, I remember. Yes, exactly. Good memory. Well, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've gone down quite a dark rabbit hole here with uh, litigation and serious and in- career-ending yeah. injuries. <laughs> Been out of my deck though as well. <laughs> but just, yeah, and if anyone's got any, uh, you know, an injury that wasn't your fault, give Anthony a call. <laughs> <laughs> but just to kind of uh, take a bit of a turn, yeah. you mentioned at the top of the show, um, Ned, that he hadn't been on stage since 2018. And mm, on stage yeah. for you means being on stage alone. And it means the return of your stage show, which used to be called Tour de Ned. And now it's called... Tour de Ned. Yeah. <laughs> and it's shockingly infantile, isn't it? You know, what should we call it? Oh, that'll do. Slap it up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I'm about to embark on 28 days touring around England and Scotland and Wales. Uh, and um, and uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've been absolutely paralysed by nerves because I have to, you know, it's a completely new show. I've been writing it in my head, <laughs> literally in my head um, for months and stamping around outside, kind of rambling about Cadell Evans out loud to people in South London parks and um, and going insane. Um, but uh, But, yeah, so it's a kind of, uh, it's like a fever dream really the show is supposed to it's designed um for you to enjoy it's supposed to you're supposed to kick back come in and laugh as loud as you can for for a couple of hours including an interval um and it's a it's a it's a celebration of the utter absurdity of the tour de france throughout its history with particular attention to this year's race and the ludicrous personality that is Wout van art <laughs> and does the uh, does the ghost of uh, Henri de Grange appear reappear to you in a washing machine as once was? As once was well remembered, yeah, with the voice of Al Murray. <laughs> he he was very kindly. He recorded the voice of Henri de Grange and played the part of Henri de Grange. He said he said to me, "Who the fuck's Henri de Grange?" Then and I went, oh, "It doesn't matter. Just just do a French accent like that." And he goes, "Well, I don't know what it means, but he was he was <laughs> he played along with it anyway." Henri de Grange does appear in the Ritter de Ned, but not as a ghost from a washing machine. I will I will say no more than that, but he is on stage. He's definitely on stage. And uh, what's the best place for people to pick up tickets for? Um, it is a website called Ents, as in entertainment, ents24.com. And um, you just go on that and you search for Ned Bolting and all the dates will pop up there, ents24.com. Awesome. Ned, I absolutely love chatting. It was just a brilliant insight into the last couple of decades of cycling history. Before I leave you alone, Anthony, can I just recommend to all your podcast listeners that if it's still on the ITV hub, over the winter I filmed a, um, an hour-long uh, history of Irish road racing. Oh, I'm going to check that out. Um, and uh, I can't remember what the title was now. The Green Revolution or something like that? Ned's History of Irish Cycling. I think it was as simple as that um, on uh, the ITV hub. And my God, I enjoyed it, Anthony. It was so interesting. We were filming all over the island in the north and the south and in the west, in the Wicklow Mountains, which are near you. And I learned so much about, you know, about how much more there is to the story in Ireland than just Kelly and Roach, you know. When you learn about Shay Elliott and people like that. Yeah, Shay Elliott's tragic story. Tragic story, but even like the origins before that of the sport and the schism in the sport and then the history of the Ross, it's a, it's a story like no other. It really is. I really enjoyed making that. We'll have to get you over to commentate on the Ross next year. That would be brilliant. I'd love that. I'm so glad that the Ross is back as well. That's that's great. Yeah, yeah. back for a five-day, I think, again next year. So we'll definitely get you over for it. Good stuff. All right. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ned. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Cheers. Ned Bolting, ladies and gentlemen, 
Um, real name Edward, I expect. Haven't actually ever asked him that. But he is such an interesting guy because he's got that unique inside perspective, almost like a professional racer, really, because he is around them. And like he was saying back in the early days, particularly the access to riders was incredible. But he's also able to speak openly about what it is to kind of be a professional rider in a way that riders, you know, riders just don't. And I think the things that kind of struck me in that were, number one, it's interesting over two decades, his, his favourite moment still is seeing Cav get his first, his maiden victory at Tour de France in, I'm going to say 2008, was that right? Uh, when he's riding for HTC. I probably stand to be corrected. But then also, you know, it's a strange situation to find himself in being that newbie cycling reporter in the midst of the second coming of one of the second ultimate shitstorms of cycling, which was, you know, to kind of quote him, EPO round two. And that feeling of being an outsider. And I just wanted to ask you, Anthony, with that, when was that first time that you thought, um, you know, this is, these guys are different to me? And when was the first time you thought, I think I've cracked this cycling that I think I'm in on the inside? I, firstly, on the Ned Balding thing, a lot of times, I'm not sure if you found this happened to you, I was just so mesmerized by his voice that I forgot to tune into what he was actually saying at points. It's like, his voice is so cool. I could, I must get him to just send me a WhatsApp, just speaking to me and I can listen to it drifting off at night in some sort of weird, creepy way. Uh, it's like a cycling lullaby. But yeah, for me, the, the Lance Armstrong stuff, he had a unique experience on that. And my experience in that EPO era, it's it's quite limited because my cycling started after that. But I was in France and I had one teammate and he had been popped for taking EPO. And it was largely suspect he was back from his ban, but it was largely suspected that he was still taking something that he shouldn't have. But the gap in ability between him and the rest of the squad was absolutely uncomprehendable so you know shortly after he was with my team he retired again under sort of a cloud a mysterious cloud but it was talking to friends that were involved in the u.s postal team a former coach of mine was involved in the u.s postal team and it was just him showing me the real data of here's a training file pre-epo here's a training file post-epo that you just thought it's impossible to compete. That difference is so, so huge. It's impossible to bridge that gap with hard work. But Ned is so brilliantly positioned through that whole era because he gets to be on the inside, but kind of almost simultaneously being on the outside, which is not a perspective I've had before. I've only got the info from riders who were involved in it, and they were up so close that they couldn't really zoom out and see the context of what they're doing in you know a legacy perspective in terms of the damage it was doing to the sport. They were so just wrapped up in, how is it affecting me? How is it affecting my chances of winning a race or getting a contract? But I think Ned had that sort of perspective where he could hover above the whole situation and see how dangerous and toxic it was to the public image of the sport that we love. Absolutely. And I think as well, it's interesting his perspective coming at it from, you know, his background was doing football, a bit of darts commentary as well, coming into cycling as a complete newbie. He doesn't seem to have the same being mortally offended by the whole thing kind of attitude that lots of more dyed-in-the-wool cyclists have, you know. People that would literally go out and burn, uh, it's not about the bike, Armstrong autobiography, having, you know, found out for, for real. They're that offended by this, this whole thing kind of happening. And I sort of sympathise with that in a sense, or at least I, I can put myself in those uh, in those shoes, as in I was a newbie to road cycling in about 2003, same as Ned. And I'm sort of still fascinated by the EPO and the, you know, the doping years in a way that I sort of feel like I'm not allowed to be. But because <laughs> I didn't, I'm, you know, I'm not, I didn't, I'm not steeped in the heritage of it. I didn't have any heroes of mine suddenly turn out to be villains. I don't feel kind of like misled I just feel absolutely fascinated by the human psychology of the whole thing um and I don't know I feel like I'm bringing a lot of that to the podcast and maybe maybe wrongly and maybe we need to <laughs> pull back on James's fascination with Lance Armstrong and uh Festina and doping and everything else but it's yeah it's just interesting to hear it from Ned's perspective because I feel he kind of like grew up and into it and it is different to other uh, other cycling pundits that I've kind of heard talk so yeah I definitely say for that reason go and go and check out his show which we did touch on, which he's touring with now, because as much as it is a comedy thing, it's it's 
a comedy thing from a unique perspective of a guy that kind of grew up in cycling, as he said, wrote a book called How I Won the Yellow Jumper. It is really interesting because I have noticed that on the podcast, you like to dig deep on the kind of Lance Armstrong, Tyler Hamilton, the the real strategy around the doping. Like, what were you taking? When were you taking it? You want the extra follow-up question on it. And you know what? I actually want the extra follow-up question as well that you're asking. But... I don't know why I have this weird, and so many of us that are in cycling do have this weird hesitancy to go deeper on it because we're almost meant to be tired of that topic by now. We're meant to be fatigued by that topic and we're meant to be, you know, too cultured or we're meant to be in this new enlightenment era where we've moved past it. But I still have that same morbid fascination. But I get to sort of live it out tacitly through you without putting myself on the line (laughs) and showing my true colours. Glad I can be a kind of like foil to your to your disposition. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the guy that can't go over the Second World War. You know, I'm just always living in the past. Keep making more films about doping. That's what I say. <laughs> uh, James, thanks for chatting again this week. Ned Bolton was a blast, and we'll be back again in two weeks. Thanks for sharing, Ned, folks. Lovely stuff. See ya.